Zeke, we're on day three. This is a look back of some early interviews that we did on Dad Tricky Bourbon. And this one really stands out to me. I remember this vividly. It was right before the Derby. It was April 28th, 2018. And of course... For those of you that know, the Derby is the first Saturday in May. I had been working this, working this, working this, and saying, hey, Zeke, I got Sean Josephs, the guy that started Pinhook Bourbon, and all of this is about horse racing, and it's like each one is named after a horse, and that horse actually runs, and you can bet on bourbon, and this is awesome, and then we sit Sean down, and he goes, I know nothing about horse racing. That is all my partner, Jamie Hill. What I remember the most about this, for those of you that have followed us for more than three shows at least by now, realized I don't always listen to John when he talks. And by don't always, I mean a lot of the time. You also didn't like interviews. You didn't want to do interviews from the very beginning. I, I didn't say that. No, you I did. You said I'd much rather sit around and drink and do blind tastings. I said I always wondered about the relevancy of it to the consumer. And I and think that three years that, later. Well, a lot changes in one year, much less three. <laughs> and admittedly, going into this, all I knew about Pinhook was that John loved racing. Pinhook was somehow tied to racing. John was giddy about it. And hey, let's do it. Now I'm like, all right, man, like, I don't know anything about this at all. I'm coming in blind, but you know what? I'll jump off the cliff here with you. Aren't you glad you did? I think that's the best part about this that I know you've been waiting to pounce on is how apprehensive I was on this show. And then you leave somewhere around midnight. It was like 1231. I, I left. Mean, somewhere well past two, maybe even three, Sean and I finally wrap up shooting the shit. Looking at it in retrospect would now become like one of many late night rambles he and I have had about everything under the moon, including life and whiskey. But I call him during the day. You wait to call him late at night. But the thing that as you're listening to this show, there are these light bulbs that keep going off in Zeke's head. It starts off and Sean's talking about how he was a former restaurateur and obviously he had to divest those businesses when he started his bourbon company. Zeke's listening to him and Sean goes, yeah, you know, I used to own chart number four in New York. And Zeke's like, wait, didn't y'all do a pick with Linnell? And there are certain things that being the Willet guy that Zeke is, Sean's talking. He's like, you did one of like the most epic Willets that were ever made. And the more and more Sean starts talking, Zeke starts leaning. Like as I'm watching this happen, he starts leaning in more and more. And he's more and more engaged in this interview as Sean is opening his mouth. You can tell when I dial it in and when I don't. Oh, yeah, you can. But no, I, I hope everyone in, enjoys this show thoroughly. There's at least a few more equally of good, if if not maybe even better, late night ramble with Sean shows. And literally, that's, that's all they are. We have a, an idea of content going into it, and it gets thrown out the window within 20 minutes, and then we just shoot the shit and have a blast. But literally, I, I can't think of anything or anyone we've had a more genuine time with over and over and over the thing i like about this one is this is the very beginning and zeke when you say things can be very different in a year opposed to three years and at this point in pinhook they were just coming off this was the last release of the 90 proof in that first mgp run they had and uh it's amazing how 
how much that company has changed since this show that we had with him. And a lot of times, I mean, I know we gave him a lot of questions on the air and off the air about how come you're just at 90 proof? He goes like, admittedly, I was a wine guy. I thought you picked your proof and you stuck with it. You look at Pinhook now and they have their rye series, their bourbon series, and then a cask series in rye and a cask series in bourbon and then their vertical series in rye and bourbon and just how much they have grown up in just a couple of years since we talked to Sean in this show. And it's just crazy. It's amazing as long as you're able to be agile in this business, how much growth you can have and how crazy it can be. I mean, it, it's just awesome to look back at this episode and see where he is now. Agree 100% and can't wait till 2021 lord willing the creek don't rise uh, we'll, we'll be back to do a another pinhook pick this time of castle and key distillate i know and i was drinking breaking bread tonight and it was just something i was sitting there looking back thinking about everything and that was a great pick great people which makes bourbon even better let's just get to it today's show is sponsored by cascartel.com changing the industry standard as to how you get your alcohol you can get it shipped directly to your door with cascartel.com whatever it is it's whiskey it's bourbon it's scotch it's rye it's gin it's rum whatever it is go to cascartel.com get it shipped directly to your door obviously some of the allocated stuff is going to cost more because it is a convenience play you're sitting at home and getting liquor shipped directly to you you're not going out and going to a whole bunch of stores saying you got any pappy you know where the pappy is it's going to cost more there but your daily drinkers are going to be priced right so go to cascartel.com get those shipped directly to you follow them on instagram at cascartel they're always doing awesome giveaways to their fans also this show is sponsored by premiumbarproducts.com the one and only place you can go to get the dad's drinking bourbon official glen karen go to premiumbarproducts.com check out their menu find ddb glass look at that buy our glass you can also personalize your own laser etched glassware while you're there so if you want to etch a glass that says zeke bring back the stash you can do that you can also find bar tools they have the tua they have the dram they have the wee glen karen the glen karen they have all sorts of awesome stuff that you can find at premiumbarproducts.com and they're good people if you have a bigger order, if you're a distillery or a bourbon group, whatever it is, reach out to me and I will get you in touch with them if you have a wholesale order. Happy to do so. But without further ado, this is our first time. Now, side note, Zeke, Sean has been on five times. I counted it. You weren't listening to me. I said Sean has been on five times. I heard that. I'm aware. Okay. Well, without further ado, here's Sean. I mean, shit, the last time we were up till three again. <laughs> Hello, hello everyone. My name is John Edwards. With me as always is Zeke Baker and together we make the Dad's Drinking Bourbon wherever you are, whatever time it is. Thank you very much for making us a part of your day. Say hello to the folks, Zeke. Hello, hello. Hope you guys have enjoyed some uh, fun-filled episodes recently. We've clearly had a blast and have a another wonderful episode teed up again for tonight. We hope that uh, you, you all enjoy 
we, we certainly know we will. This has been a jam-packed few months of guests, and tonight is no different because we have Sean Joseph's hashtag bourbon himself from Pinhook Bourbon in the Dad's Drinking Bourbon studio. Thank you very, very much for joining. Great to be here, guys. I, I feel like that's a lie. it's genuinely great to be here but no we are we are very very happy to have you i think um the derby is coming up whenever this comes out it will be either a week or less than a week until the kentucky derby and what better way to celebrate than with the man who is behind a brand that is all based on horses no better way so we're going to talk about that and, and the unique aspect of Pinhook Bourbon, but let's get right into the whiskey conversation. Sean, you actually weren't somebody who grew up in whiskey. I mean, you you were a restaurateur, you were a sommelier for wine, you, you kind of fell into this business. What drew you into whiskey and what made you decide to... You know, be the man behind uh, blending together a lot of great bourbons and, and rice. It's a good question. I mean, I think uh, like most good things in life, dumb luck had a lot to do with it. Um, so yeah, like I, I got my start in the restaurant business. I was a, a food runner, worked my way up to server, captain, got super interested in wine. This is obviously the very abridged version. Did some sommelier exams, got my certified sommelier from the American Sommelier Association, did the first two levels of the Court of Master Sommeliers, so certified sommelier from there. Worked at some fancy restaurants uh, in New York City, worked for a really big restaurant group called Be Our Guest, doing the wine thing, the sommelier thing, and just kind of along the way got really interested in whiskey. And I think part of it honestly had to do with the fact that your job as a sommelier is really to assess wine quality relative to price. That's really your role. You're supposed to introduce great wine to your guests, uh, train your staff so they can learn about wine. But ultimately, anytime you taste a wine, you just really think about it relative to price, quality relative to complexity. And, you know, as part of my studies on the sommelier side, I did have to delve into the entire world of spirits. And so I start tasting these whiskeys and you realize like, wow, how how about this whiskey I bought for $15 in a shop? Relative to price, it's delivering an incredible amount of complexity and deliciousness for not very much money. And by the way, you can open it, have a sip, not touch it for a year. It doesn't go bad. And, you know, so I think like a lot of people listening and I know you two guys sitting here, I just really just started as a bourbon nerd and really enjoying trying a lot of different whiskeys. Not to be too controversial right off the bat, but are the wine ratings as arbitrary and BS as the bourbon ratings? Because whatever this scale out of 100, and and that's something that Zeke and I kind of shy away from, because, I, I mean... How do you say something is an 87 versus a 93? Yeah. It's more, would you buy it, right? Correct. Yeah, it, it, I would agree. It's total bullshit. Um, yeah, I think the, the wine rating started with good intentions, which is the idea of like trying to separate the good from the bad and helping consumers pick quality products and not being separated from their money for um, subpar quality product. But 
that being said, yeah, what separates uh, one man's 78 is someone else's 81, right? It doesn't really matter. It's pretty arbitrary. So I would agree wholeheartedly with that. No, that's to a large degree what led John and I to this whole uh, experiment or, or fun, quote unquote. This is an experiment? Hey, either way, this, this is the one night we get to uh, enjoy ourselves and, and shoot the shit with random folks and have a really good time. But <laughs> to loop it back in, it, it was, yeah, people have a rating system. They drink things solely on their own and just give it a rating and you really can't put it in perspective. And, and that's why when someone really says, well, is this better than that? X better than Y, et cetera. We, we do them blind and, and we say, hey, look, here's flavors, here's cost. Here's all things considered. And then, you know, we come up with a final ranking to say, where's the bang for the buck? What are you going to enjoy drinking? What's not going to hurt your hip? Well, I think what you're saying that's fascinating to me is back when I was doing all my sommelier stuff, we would do blind tasting groups. Part of the point of the blind tasting groups was, you know, kind of honing your skills because having your blind tasting skills was an important part of being assessed on these exams. However... I will tell people to this day, when I was sitting with a good group of people on a good day, you could sit with someone who could nail like they, they knew the region and the grape and the vintage. And sometimes as crazy as it sounds, they could even pick the producer. The one thing that I would say people did most consistently was pick the quality level, meaning that's one part of the, the equation is you have to basically say what quality level are we talking about? So if you're blind tasting Burgundy, you have to say, am I tasting just overall Burgone? Am I tasting village level? Am I tasting premier crew level? Am I tasting grand crew level? Like what, what is the, the level? And I would say that even when people are off the mark on certain things, the experienced tasters were always really good at picking the quality level, right? And so I think it gets to the point of what you guys are talking about, which is so important is how worthwhile is something relative to price? Yeah. Which I think is a, a really important <clears throat> thing. I think Zeke and I have a hard time because we're, we're not always, I mean, we've tasted with people that can pick every little thing out of the whiskey and they can, they can say, I taste anise and on the nose, I'm getting lavender and slight sure. tannins and this and that and this. And, and I think Zeke and I end up going to old factory senses half the time, as you'll hear when we talk about your, your, your stuff. Yeah. But going back to kind of, so, you know, you were a sommelier, you, you started liking whiskey. How'd you end up producing it? Yeah. So that was, I mean, I'll, I'll give the, the short version in the interest of time, but basically, my wife opened a Spanish tapas restaurant in 2004. Um, and that was actually how I got my first experience in the restaurant industry was working in her restaurant as a food runner. But anyway, ultimately I went on this path of, you know, working in other restaurants and becoming a sommelier. And ultimately I became interested in also opening my own restaurant. And I feel like at the time, and this was 2007 in New York, that every week there was another wine bar opening and I had fallen in love with whiskey. And so I just kind of had this idea of, well, what about a restaurant, which instead of having a really nice wine list has a really great whiskey list. And so really the idea of this restaurant that I opened in Brooklyn in 2004 called Char Number 4 was an encyclopedic selection of American whiskey 
with really phenomenal food. And I had a chef who'd worked for Daniel Blue, who's one of the great chefs in New York, super experienced and talented, but he's from Texas. And so it was this idea of the smoked, grilled, and charred flavors that go really great with bourbon. And we built this beautiful illuminated wall of whiskey. And the goal was to try to put every last bottle of American whiskey that we could find through distribution on that wall. I don't know for folks listening, I don't know how many people are, you know, have kind of followed the the timeline, but in 2008, there wasn't that much, much stuff compared to what there is today, 10 years later on that wall. And certainly very little on the craft side, things have changed a lot. I mean, you open the restaurant, you're getting kind of into there. Yeah. How do you end up down in Kentucky picking barrels? Yeah, so the, that fun stuff. yeah, so the dumb luck just continued and being around it all the time, going to Kentucky, visiting distilleries, meeting suppliers when they came into town. It just made me interested and curious to get closer to the entire process. And so to me, the next logical thing was obviously not doing something really crazy like building a distillery, but it was like, could, could, we, <laughs> could we acquire some barrels and enjoy kind of the maturation process of those barrels and ultimately find a way to proof blend bottle and release them not with any sense of like having a brand or building anything but just more out of you know just that kind of like you i think like you guys you love whiskey so what like if being bored and having fun being, right being bored having fun <laughs> our, our worst case scenario was you know we're gonna spend too much time in kentucky running around doing dumb stuff and to cut to the chase we succeeded in that but you're you know, describing my college years <laughs> to a team running around kentucky doing dumb stuff I should mention, though, because it's a good time to mention because it, it does kind of frame what's happened in the whiskey world. So the first barrels we bought were in 2011. And I think that at the time we bought the barrels from MGP, but at the time that was called LDI and before it was bought by MGP. And honestly, we weren't clearly the first people to buy from them, but it wasn't kind of a known quantity at that point, meaning there was no bullet rye when we were starting to look around you know, there wasn't really a lot of knowledge of what they were doing. So it took a lot of like kind of digging around to even, it, it sounds crazy now because everyone's like, oh, LDI, MGP. But at the time, just, it really just started with, we want to get our own barrels. Where do we get those barrels? So I started with dumb things like asking Heaven Hill if they would give me some <laughs> barrels, which didn't go very well. They um, might now. Maybe, they, <laughs> who knows? But at the time, it was actually quite hard to find. What we did find, though, which is very interesting, when we did find the barrels and we're like, oh, there's this place, apparently, that has a lot of whiskey that, and they would sell it to us. A three-year-old bourbon barrel was $465 a barrel, 53-gallon. You know, you're talking about your standard barrel in 2011. And obviously that, you know. I, I would say, I would just say safely, it would cost 10 times that much if you could find said barrel. Even being on the low side, right? Correct. Yeah, I it mean, could be, it could be a lot more than that. So you're telling me that we could have in 2011. Anybody could have done it. Yeah. <laughs> See, where did we go wrong? 2011, I, I think I was still living in the desert. Were you? But I, I will circle back to say I, I love, that you were at a, a, a tapas restaurant because 
inevitably those have been my favorite places to eat as I've gotten older. And somehow with the southern dialect and probably leaving off some syllables, people always think I'm saying topless. Correct. Like, oh, you're going to the strip club. That, that's really advantageous of you at 32 and, you know, it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So it's funny you said that, though, because <laughs> my, my wife's partner in the restaurant is from Memphis. And okay. when they first started running around telling people they were going to open this restaurant, my wife's partner had an uncle who said, it's fun that we're joking about it, but literally thought that they were going to open a Spanish topless restaurant. And he was like, this sounds like a great idea. No, I've had countless friends in town. And I'm like, oh no, we need to go to this place. It's amazing. We'll just get small plates. They're all five to eight dollars. We're just going to eat ourselves silly on random food. They're like, we're going to a topless restaurant, Zeke. Like, where are you going with this? So no, I love that. The second thing I will uh, at least try to circle back on before I forget, char number four, you may not have been there when this happened, but my at least most prized open willet is C14A, which is a split between char number four and aster. I may have said aster wrong, but... Oh, wow. If you were there for that, in either way, I wish I would have known I would have brought it, but it's a 21-year-old Bernheim weeder. I haven't. I know the bottle. I, I've yet to pour anything that I own to anyone else that I felt more proud to share. Sorry, I don't have it here. If I would have known the history, it's I would have tried a, to oblige. It's a great bottle. Did you help pick it? No, I just was able to get it because <laughs> I think that you know. There's yeah, but it goes back to the whole thing is you know in 2008, and I think it it is. I think it is interesting to kind of like reference a time frame in 2008 when Char Number Four opened. We were ahead of our time, not because we were smart, but just, again, dumb luck. But the bourbon thing had not happened. And there was kind of infinite access to the kind of bottles that people would. And and not just on the secondary market, but I mean, I could pick up the phone every week and order 25-year-old Rittenhouse. I could order 17-year-old uh, vintage bourbon and 21-year-old vintage rye and 23-year-old vintage rye. And um, Pappy was plentiful. And my friends in other restaurants would not give me their Pappy, but they would sell it to me at their cost because having a bottle that they paid 125 bucks for would just sit on their shelf. And was they're like, I can't do anything with this. You can have it. And, and that that is emblematic, not just like, oh, that Charner before had some impact on that, but just that since that time, that's how much things have changed, which is that you could get as much Pappy Van Winkle as you wanted. So, well, the sad thing is that I, I think of, and I think of my college years, and I lived across the street from a Kroger. and You could have collected it all day long. The stuff that was in there in Lexington in... You know, 2002 to 2006 was... I could have got Tornado from um, E.H. Taylor. I could have got Unlimited Pappy. Since it was New York and obviously times were much different, as, as some folks know. Did you land any of uh, Linnell's Red Hook? Of course I did. Absolutely. I can say this now because I haven't heard from her in a while. She actually gave me an angry phone call because... We sourced it. It wasn't available wholesale. So we had gotten it, you know, basically through a friend and put it on the shelf. And she's like, you're not allowed to. She called me and like, bitched me out. You're not allowed to do that. You can't have that. <laughs> that was, yeah, I know you didn't get that through a distributor because that was for retail only. And that, 
but that was a great bottle. And anyway, and sorry to segue for anyone listening, but that's that, a great bottle. Zeke's geeking out right now. That's an epic rye that was sourced from KBD Willet, whatever you want to call it. Great stuff. If you find one now, great label too, by the way, that, with that, a strong with the the bicep thing, it was dope. Love it. They sell for eight, ten k or more. Like it, it, <laughs> it's by far one of the most epic pours anyone will ever talk about That's having. Great. And I may have to walk out of the room now. So let's go back. <laughs> well, let's take it back. Let's go right. Back. So you're you're. It's a pinhook. It is. 2011. Yeah, I I have to think that some of the stigma is almost there in going to places like LDI MGP at that time too, because there was. I mean, I would even say in the past two three years, there's been a huge shift in bias from NDPs actually going. I mean, there there's the consensus sure. that MGP is putting out good product. I yeah, think, you know, it's a nice shift. With the advent of Smooth Ambler, Bell Mead, you sure. guys, Blom Brothers, Boone County. Sure. There's a wealth of goodwill towards MGP at the moment. I think it's been a shift. But I also think it was funny for me. I never even... I mean, the interesting thing about a stigma is I never looked at it that way because, again, I not to keep going back to the Sommelier side, but I was coming from the wine side where the negotiant model for hundreds and hundreds of years has been a long-lived idea, right? The idea that, you know, someone else grew the grapes and someone else even made the wine. But then you immediately take possession of it and then it's all about the aging. It's about the aging and the blending. It's about what you decide to do with those barrels once they're in your possession. And I think that, not to get too philosophical about it but i i think i also saw it as like well what's the difference between these larger distilleries that produce a hundred different labels they're essentially doing the same thing they're taking three different recipes a bourbon recipe a rye recipe and a high rye recipe or a weeded recipe whatever it is and from that they're producing what they believe are all these different expressions and so what's the difference from an outsider collecting some of those barrels from one of those people and say i'm going to then produce my own expression Plenty of old, you know, Heaven Hill, KBD, etc. You'll see tons of labels, random proofs. End of the day, they were all just dumping the same barrels. Correct. And who cares as long as it tastes good and you like it, right? I but mean, I, I think the only difference is in bourbon, you know, pre-prohibition, you have the rectifiers adding the food coloring. Correct. Adding the, you know, somewhat toxic uh, additives at some point. Yeah, well, that's true. That's and a that's good point. where you get that bias. And I think it, it's not, I mean, it's funny to say that it's probably been 80, 90 years, 80, 90, 100 years of bias. Right. For some of, uh, that, those rectifiers there. And it's only recently that I think that bias is going away. So where. Which is great. It's interesting for you coming from, you know, the wine side, you wouldn't have that bias where a straight up whiskey nerd. Correct. There's, there's that kind of, oh, rectifiers are bad. And I'm not saying that now. Right. But let's go even back six years. There are people that are saying rectifiers right. are bad. You know, producing distilleries are good, rectifier bad. And then now it's almost like, it's it's almost like MGP is. I mean, you can't find anybody right now that's saying. Oh, it's MGP they don't make good bad. stuff. Yeah, correct. It's crazy. No, it's laughable. Anybody that tells you they don't like it, okay, 
Let me fix you up a blind. Correct. <laughs> I bet your favorite is going to be what you hate. You're bringing up to me an interesting point, though, is that the <clears throat> the rectifiers at a certain time represented a sort of thinning out or basically taking a purer product and somehow diluting it, it, it not in a good way. But I think what's happening in the more recent years, and I'm not saying this to rub this in, but it's like the three of us sitting there all have a lot in common, meaning I was just someone who was like a whiskey enthusiast that happened to, along with my good friends and partners, acquire some barrels and try to do something with them. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of a new thing that's been happening a lot lately is you're not part of a generation of distillers. You're not part of yeah, no, a historic dist- distillery. having fun with their booze. You're people that love whiskey, and you're trying to do your best to make really, really good whiskey. Right? Yeah, and, and it goes back to the thing, you know, with respect to Pinhook, with what happened for us once we were hanging out in Kentucky checking out checking in on our barrels and watching the mage is that one of my partners um jay peterson his really best friend from high school this guy jamie hill was in in the thoroughbred horse business and jamie's dad dr uh, james hill was the track vet for naira so belmont saratoga queen's aqueduct and got really good at picking horses and so in addition to being around the animals and caring for them, people started to come to him and say, Dr. Hill, what do you think of this horse? You know, do you think it's going to be a good thoroughbred? Turns out Dr. Hill and another guy go on this horse, in on this horse 50-50 for $17,500. That horse is Seattle Slew, who wins the Triple Crown in 1977. <laughs> so Jamie grows up in this world. We're hanging out in Kentucky. Jamie starts to introduce me to a world which I knew absolutely nothing about. So you kind of imagine that it's like, I don't know, you meet a guy who's like the owner of an NBA team or something like that. And all of a sudden you're like, what's this <laughs> basketball? <all about?" laughs> you're, but you're getting to watch them practice and you're going to games. And so same thing. So Jamie's introducing, I mean, Jay, Jay and my, my other partner, Charles, knew that world a bit. But for me, I'm getting introduced for the first time to like watching horses train, watching them breeze early morning at Keeneland. Which is uh, one of the best things ever. Which is I an amazing experience, right? It you know the Keelan meets going on uh, right now. It'll be over at the end of April. But it, what, no matter what track you're at, six o'clock in the morning at the track is the best time. You will see if you think that horse racing is all about gambling. I mean, let me let the cat out of the bag for you for a minute. Horse racing is a, the racing is a means to an end. the The industry is based on breeding. So it is you race to make your horse more attractive for breeding in the long run. But, you know, just the the atmosphere at the track, the people who are at the track at 6 a.m., those are the people that are working, grinding every day. Yeah. And it's just, it's the best time ever. It's really, really cool. And that's kind of, it's great to hear you kind of, because you know a lot better than I do, but to, to have you like frame it like that, because that was kind of the experience for us that kind of had gave us our kind of epiphany our like chocolate and the peanut butter moment we're like wait a minute bourbon horses kentucky it's the most obvious thing in the world we started looking at the landscape and we're like okay woodford is the official bourbon of the derby that's a once a year thing it's a label they put the same woodford in the bottle that's their thing makers will do commemorative bottling of a derby winner 
triple crown winner, that kind of thing. Blanton's has a horse on top. But what, <laughs> but what we start to see is none of them are connected to thoroughbred horse racing day in and day out, right? And so we started to think that there was an opportunity to better capture this amazing experience that John, you're describing. And so the idea that came about really was going to Jamie, who in addition to his pin hooking and for, you know, anyone who's listening who doesn't know, pin hooking is kind of this hedge against the racing side where you're buying weanlings, which are baby horses that have been weaned from their mothers and you sell them as a one-year-old. So it's basically like flipping a house and the pin hook is this flip. You buy a baby, you sell it as a one-year-old, and you basically hope that your knowledge of that horse's lineage and your eye for its you know, how it looks physically will result in a horse that when you decide to sell it is going to be worth more than you paid for it. And that's a hedge against racing, which while it has potentially higher yield is very risky. And so Jamie also has a racing stable called Bourbon Lane Stable. And this was before we ever had this idea for Pinhook um, Bourbon or Pinhook Rye. And each horse in Jamie's stable has bourbon in the name. And he just did that so that anytime you're at a race anywhere, whether you're at Ocala or you're at Santa Anita or you're at Pimlico, wherever you are, Keeneland, Churchill, and you see a horse called bourbon something or something bourbon, you know, that's a bourbon lane horse. So he was already doing, he was already doing that. It's funny you say that. I mean, a a big family in racing is the Ramses, but every single one of their horses has kitten. Yeah. So it's just an idea. It's like a branding yeah, yeah, same same thing. Same just, idea. It's funny because you know as you go through the lineage in in horse racing, and this isn't for Sean. Sean knows this at now, you know by now. But you always have an aspect of the horse that is your sire or mare right. is going to be in the name of the progeny. So you know if you have an AP Indy, you might have you know Zeke Indy is the the next right. horse that's coming down. There's something of that sire uh that that's going to be brought down or the mayor depending on you know what it is so um that's, that's kind of cool yeah and that's a great segue actually because well i'll i'll tie it back into like how we finally got to this idea of like what pinhook bourbon and pinhook rye is but we're drinking uh pinhook rye which is this horse's bourbon and rye so this horse's sire was mclean's music as a non-McLean who wrote Bye Bye Miss American Pie and the good old boys <laughs> were drinking whiskey and rye. So hence the horse's name Bourbon and Rye, which is that connection. But so what we came to, though, getting back to the, the idea of the horses was how can we more closely connect people to the idea of thoroughbred horse racing and, and, and whiskey? And what we came to was this idea of going to Jamie and saying, what if every release of pinhook bourbon or pinhook rye is connected to a bourbon lane horse but that's a horse that's just starting its racing career so you can actually follow the career of the horse and see how it does and as john knows all too well you know the reality is like we asked jamie you know pick the horse that you think has the best chance of making it to the kentucky derby well there are 20 horses in the field and whatever thirty-four thousand foals born each year <laughs> you know the chances of making it to the derby are quite slim but we feel ultimately we will have a derby runner or if we're really lucky we'll have one that places but um i think really the idea was how do you get people more into it so the idea is once a year a pinhook bourbon or a pinhook rye comes out, it's connected to a horse that just started. And through the pinhook website, you can follow, you can see the full lineage of the horse and you can follow what, what races are they in next? How did they place in the race? Where did they finish? 
and hopefully tying together the kind of uh, experience at the racetrack you were talking about. Well, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, and I'm not just saying this because of the fact that, you know, I used to do radio for horse racing and followed horse racing very I'm pretty sure you sat at the track at 6 a.m. naked. That's just the vision I have. Oh, nobody wants to see me naked. If I was at the track... That's the impression I'm getting here. Uh, they put a saddle on me if they saw me naked at 6 in the morning at the track. But the, the, um, I, I just had to throw it out there. But, you know, the aspect that I like about, you know, the, the releases is if you look at every single one of these, and I do collect the bourbons and the rye, but, you know, each bottle is going to have aspects on the horse so not only do you have the abv the proof uh the the lot you also have the name of the horse how many hands it was and then a description of the horse is it a dark bay is it a chestnut is it a gelding and then when you go to the website and you're actually clicking on the bourbon yeah. or the rye whatever it is it says learn more about the horse at the bottom you click that you learn all about the horse at the bottom and these are actually, I mean, I think it takes for, and maybe this is because I'm dorking out because of the horse racing aspect of it, but it's kind of fun to be able to go to the track. You can't, and I don't want to pick on the brand that is the official you know, Kentucky Derby yeah. uh, brand, but you can't go to the, the track and bet on Woodford Reserve. Correct. You could go and bet, you know, Woodford sponsors, sponsors a race, as does Makers. You know, the Makers Mark Mile is one Correct. of my favorite races at, at Keeneland. But you can't go bet on Makers Mark. You Correct. can go bet on Bourbon Empire. You can bet on Urban Bourbon. You can bet on Correct. Yeah, um, they're out Bourbon there. and Rye. Correct. So these, it almost takes the experience a little bit further because, you know, say you win money on Bourbon. When has Bourbon ever paid you back? <laughs> That's what I want to know. You said it better than I did, but I, I think we tried to encapsulate the entire thing, meaning you go into a store, you go to a restaurant, you can order a glass or buy a bottle of Penhook. That horse is in the game. And so then you can go to the next level, right? Now you, in a way, you own that horse. Now, hopefully you're not taking a gamble on what's in the bottle. We like to think we've already, you know, guaranteed that you're tasting a really good whiskey. But that horse is starting its career. It's a horse you could bet on. It's a horse that could make it to the Derby. It's a horse in theory that could win the Derby as, as, you know, as long as the odds are on that. And we ultimately had the goal of tying people as closely as we could to what that experience is. And I think the cool thing though, what I've seen is there's some people that don't want to take it that far, right? And they're just like, this is a cool looking bottle and it's got a horse on it and this whiskey tastes really good. And we're fine with that. We're not demanding that people take it all the way, but for people who are interested, I think you can take it as far as you want and you can take it as far as like, when's this horse racing next? I'm putting money on them because I own a bottle of that whiskey and I'm excited about it. You know, I'm going to skip us ahead a little bit here. Zeke, I hope you don't mind. No, no, that, I was going to throw a yellow flag and interject saying, I love everything we've done here. But there's been no mention of actual tasting and booze, there we go. et cetera, which ultimately, if we don't do that, then nobody wants to just hear us talk. We, we don't sound that good, much less we don't even look that good. So we need to have some. Perfect. Give me two minutes and I promise you we're going to get there. I just want to set the scene. 
You tell your wife that. <laughs> that was a good one. So let's go through. There were seven. Mm. There were seven releases. So bourbon, we did seven releases of bourbon. Correct. Bourbon courage. Yep. Bourbonize. Hashtag bourbon. Then we had bent on bourbon. Urban bourbon. Bourbon empire. And this last one, bourbon resolution. Yep. All of these were seventy five percent corn. This is something I find very interesting. Twenty and a half percent rye, yeah, and four and a half percent malted barley. Yeah. That's not a mash bill you typically hear from MGP. Again, going through these, the age of these started about six or seven years yeah. in the beginning. It is now up to nine years in bourbon resolution. Right. So those are going up every year. The other thing that's interesting to know is that first release was five thousand bottles. The subsequent releases were about. 2,000, 2,200 bottles. Yeah. It's been going up, though. Yeah, just with the rye. Just yeah, with the so rye. Yeah, so basically, the first bourbon release was the most, and then it sold out so quickly, like, to a, like it sold out in two weeks in New York <laughs> and Kentucky, and we're like, oh, my God, we're going to run out of all of our barrels, so we need to dial it back. Um, and then it took us, you know, a while to figure out the rye, and then the rye, we did 150 barrels, which, you know, in perspective, 150, obviously a lot more than 15, but you're talking about 6,800 six packs or, you know, 3,400 cases for the entire country. So still a pretty small grand, uh, grand scheme of things, pretty tiny. not a, not a, a huge footprint. So the proof on these, uh, on the bourbons, they're all 90. Correct. 45% ABV. We talked about yep. the age. We talked about the, the number of barrels. The one that we have here that Zeke and I have been drinking on and making notes on was hashtag bourbon. That was the third release. Correct. It is, these come in at about $79 retail if you're able to find it in the store. Yeah. Now, knowing that there's only about 2,200 of these, a lot of people are getting these in other methods, but you know, it's not, these aren't going up in a, a certain market crazy expensive. I haven't seen things that are so much over retail that they are unattainable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would say the, the pin hook is a, a niche, even in secondary markets, there's folks that flock to it for various reasons. And nothing else with the the release size. It, it's like plenty of other very small batch and or single barrel releases. There's folks that have had them, folks that haven't, and the ones that have them aren't going to tell many people about them if they enjoy them, so they can still buy it for less. Yeah, I'm really you know bummed that, that we're doing this episode right now because I'm screwed. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's secondary. It is what it is. We had the hashtag bourbon. Zeke, give me the tasting notes as you've been writing them down as we've been talking. Uh, tell tell me what you think about this one. Uh, Nose-wise, the first thing that hit me was um, some type of cherry wood chips. <laughs> I don't know the type of wood. Sorry about that smart, but it reminds me of uh, when my dad would smoke meat and he'd have like cherry wood chips to just give that sweetness to the flavor of like a pork loin or whatever kind of meat he had in there. Behind that, I picked up some light green grapes. Palette-wise, it really shifted. I was kind of surprised. I thought it was a, an interesting combination of ginger and root beer somewhere together. 
I really couldn't pinpoint much on it. That was my first thoughts after that. I got Dot Dr. Pepper, and then as I chewed and worked on it more, it reminded me of a couple of times I've ordered random pizza by the slice where you just throw toppings on there incessantly. It seemed like too much blue cheese. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, you, you know everything's a memory to me. That That's where I was, and that's where it ranged. I, I don't know. It's funny. it's funny you should say that because you and I oftentimes don't have the same palate. And for this one on the nose, I had dark cherry chocolate, black cherry IBC cola is what I got on the nose. That cherry note. I'm kind of in awe and shocked that you and I are <laughs> you know, agreeing on something right now. Uh, the, the taste, I said, sweet, dark chocolate, slight leather and tannins, but not unappealing. It was a little bit oaky, but not in a bad way. Like, I just liked it was dark fruit, dark chocolate, even on the, the taste and, and that. I think that oak was there. Knowing that the age was six to seven years, I was interested to see that there was a little bit of an oak taste on it for me, but I liked it because it, it, kind of fit with the dark chocolate theme. The finish for me, I had nice lingering oak and chocolate. The oak kind of hit the roof of my mouth and, and lingered there for a long time. So it wasn't something that you're just going to sip and forget about. It's going to stay with you for a while. So I really, I'm, I'm not saying this because Sean is sitting here. I really enjoyed this one. It did not have the typical MGP-ness that we typically see, but I the closest thing I think from MGP that I've had that is somewhat comparable would be the twelve year old Boone County, which saying that this is kind I of mean, comparable. I, I, to I wouldn't go that far. I mean, like um, at least I maybe, would. Like finish wise, the the palate extended. It was somewhat drying, and then it really kind of looped back around to just a, a root beer flavor at its core. Where I ended up with the too much blue cheese kind of thing, it it wasn't an oak or a or a bitter. It, it was more maybe like a salt. I don't know if you if you get too much blue cheese on something, to me it's just salty. You pucker, but it it wasn't over oaked or aged. It, that that's where the the novelty twinge to it was. Uh, I don't know if it makes sense to everyone, but that's where I resonated too, like in my mind with it. If it makes sense to you. That's all that matters. You're with me, Leather. Exactly. <laughs> that's a good line. No, that that's my favorite Chris Berman line. Who doesn't love that line? <laughs> what I would ask, bro, I mean, it's not often that you have to sit here and listen to two people that... Do you think we're off on uh, what we're actually getting? or, or? No, and I, look, I think, honestly... I mean, the biggest thing I learned doing going back to the wine thing is it's very easy to acquire a lot of knowledge about wine. I did it because I was very intensely focused on learning about wine. So I was able to study and learn a lot of facts about wine in a short period of time. But the thing that you learn, and I'm saying this with the deepest respect, is that drinking is the most important thing. <laughs> right? So... I can say that at one point I'd memorized all of the classified growths of Bordeaux of 1855, okay? 
That's a lot of memorizing. <laughs> but what does it mean if you can't say that you've tasted them all and you've tasted them all across multiple vintages? And so, to be honest, I know you guys are serious enthusiasts and you know your stuff. And so, I'm I'm the most respectful of people that drink a lot of whiskey. We, we don't necessarily it. know our stuff. We're just enthusiasts. No, you're the only person. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but it's, the, to me, they're one and the same. I mean, I, I, I believe honestly that you guys have probably tasted, you guys have tasted clearly from our conversations prior to recording this conversation. You guys are aware of and have tasted a lot of whiskey that I'm not aware of. So I would consider you guys to know way more than me about what's out there in the landscape and so i'm 100 percent appreciative of any of your comments about how pinhook tastes and i think that the whole thing that's interesting to me and is what makes this fun is when i go to blend pinhook proof pinhook and ultimately and it's a role that i'm really proud of and i really enjoy i decide when you go to a store and you buy a bottle of pinhook a lot of people helped me, but I'm the one who made the final call about what you taste in the bottle. I believed, and Zeke said this very well earlier, and I'm not going to try to paraphrase him because I'll butcher it, but it's a feeling. It is a feeling in the moment because it's a moment when you decide that this is the thing that's going to be the thing that's going to be in the bottle for a year until the next thing comes along. And you just do go on a feeling of like, I feel great about this. And I feel like this tastes awesome and I'm excited. And I think that, John, we touched on this a little bit earlier. I think originally when we proofed the bourbon, we proofed it at 90 because for the original release, Bourbon Courage, I thought that tasted the best. And I was used to, because of the way the bourbon industry works, of the idea that you like you pick your proof and that's your proof. And so we, we kept our proof at 90 and we did so for seven releases. And it took me a while to understand and having tasted enough whiskey, how big an effect the proof has on the final product. And it really took us until the rye to understand, for me to understand that where the proof is, is such a dramatic impact. And I, that I really like the idea of changing the proof. I love all the bourbons we did, but I, I'm really excited about the rye we have right now. Because I feel like, to me, this rye, besides the blending, is a result of proofing. We tasted it at 16 different proofs between 80, which is, most people might know, is the lowest proof at which you could bottle a bourbon, and 120, which is barrel proof. And I thought 93.5 was the most balanced and the best expression of the barrels we had. And that's the only reason it's 93.5. There's, there, there's no other reason behind it, except that I think it's the... And to Zeke's point, in that moment, I was like, this is the thing. This is awesome. And this is it. And I have to say, I've tasted this a lot over the last, you know, six, seven months since we bottled it. And I feel the same way tasting it tonight. I still feel great about it. Like you pour that for me. And I feel like for, for me, I'm always starting at zero. Like you put it in a glass for me and I'm kind of like reassessing it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really happy with that. That was no, our, that We made a great call. And I'm just happy about the call we made. And our, our job is each time we do a new release is to just make the best call we can. It doesn't mean it's the best whiskey anyone ever made. It doesn't mean it's the smartest thing anyone ever did. It just means in my mind, in that moment, when I'm just like, yes, that's it. That's awesome. That's what we're going to do. And we're done. And no, then we have to live with it. Like, that's the best. And by far to me, 
possibly the hardest conclusion to come to, especially as you're blending these barrels, is just to literally say, all right, I'm done here. This is where I want it. I don't care what other barrels are out there, what other flavor profiles we have access to right now, this moment, yeah, this taste, drop the hammer, we're done, let's put it out, so be it, the next one will be the next one, but yeah, I mean, we all have fear of missing something. That's how I feel about editing every single one of our episodes. There's still barrels behind you to the left, right, whatever yeah. direction you're looking, like the, the fact you can just finalize it and come to closure and say, I'm happy with this release. Yeah. There'll be a next one. But you know what's cool to me? And, and, and yeah. the, the, there'll be more, but to get but to that point. You just have to. But what's cool to me, <laughs> what's cool to me, and it's what got me into the restaurant industry, not just, you know, working as a server and a food runner and then a sommelier, but actually a restaurant owner. You have to believe on some level that you're going to offer something to the conversation. And so when you open a restaurant, you're not saying, oh, I'm going to open the best restaurant that ever existed. You're just saying, I have something to say about what a restaurant can be. And my restaurant is my expression of what that is. I feel the same way about the whiskey. I don't, there are too many great distilleries out there and too many great people also taking barrels and doing their NDP thing. It's not about who's the best. It's simply about taking the leap. But the leap is, which is interesting, is putting your name on it, right? You have to stand behind it. And I think there are probably a lot of people listening here and a lot of people that love whiskey that feel like they're not too far away from what any of us do. And they're right in that sense, meaning they would be like, hey, I think this bottle's better than that bottle. I like this distillery better than that distillery. I like this single barrel better than that single barrel, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, if you're interested, you can, you know, kind of get, be put in a position where you actually have to go public with your idea. So you're not just judging what other people are doing. You're actually saying like, this is me saying, this is what I think is great. And I think that's such an awesome thing, right? Yeah. I mean, so, when you to, put the, uh, the huevos on the table, that's a whole put new the huevos concept. on the table. I thought that's a good way. To <laughs> I mean, no, so, like, so speaking of which we're now moving into the rye, right? So we, we drank the bourbon. We're, we're getting into the rye. I need some more rye. Go ahead and get some more rye. Thank you. You did kind of, this is your name. This is, this is what you're standing behind. You, you moved to a rye from a bourbon in this release, which you know, we could talk about what actually the thought process was behind that. But this is a two year old rye, two to three years. It's 46.25% ABV, 93.5 proof, 95% rye, 5% malted barley, comes in at about 35 bucks. Zeke, what'd you get on this? We've been sipping on it for a while. Uh, with the rye, I had a nose, um, fresh mint spritzer. Uh, no wintergreen, if that makes sense to people that dive into various ryes, especially younger ones. Um, it just had a bubbly sense to it. Palette-wise, I thought it was a really good mix of barley and rye balance. It had a, a decent chew. As it chewed, it seemed to me like a... A spiked raw honey. If you've had farm raw honey, it, it's different than what you get in the store. And there was an alcohol component to it. As far as there's too much elaboration. Um, beyond that, 
had a more honey themes, young honeysuckle, honeydew, somewhere in there. Greenish, if you want to put a color with it. Finish wise, I thought it had a very enjoyable warmth. It wasn't too much, wasn't too little. Most people, if they drink a rye, they expect something to be there on the back end. This was right in the sweet spot. Sweet barley toward the back. I resonate to that. I'm a fan, admittedly. Uh, and, and just, again, kind of the, a singe. It told you it was there. Didn't hurt. Wasn't too light. But it, balance, I guess I would say, was the key for this throughout. No, I would agree with you. And it, it's almost, this is one of my favorite tasting notes, but it was almost that Goldilocks aspect of it where you know it's not too hot. It's not too thin. It's just right. The nose for me was mint. I got that rye spice on there, but it was almost like that fresh meadow scent I get a lot of time with the rye. It's almost like being in a field, you're actually smelling the the grain and and getting that aspect of it along with the mint for me. The taste, I, I did get some mint on the taste, slight tingle on the tongue and mouth, but not overwhelming. It was light and refreshing. I did get the honey and the sweetness there along with the the spice and that tingle the finish though you know for such a young rye and i don't think age necessarily matters on a rye but it it just it lingered like an older rye and i think that's the aspect where i want to bring age in just in the sense that it stayed and stayed and stayed and i almost got a little bit of oak which i typically don't get from a rye but I, I just got, it was a little bit darker on the finish for me and just stayed there for a very long time. Like it was, um, you know, it was like one of those freshmen in, in high school that ends up making friends with all the seniors and hanging out with them. Just, it was. I think you're a little oaky tonight. I, maybe I am. Normally, normally that's my dig. Well. But, but you're picking it up more than I am, but. I'm just getting it, it. I see where you are. I'm just laughing at it. Yeah. Based on where we normally are on our uh, our comparative notes. But it, it just stayed and lingered like it was a, you know, a freshman that hangs out with the seniors. It was, and I, I only say that because the darkness and the oakiness is something that I would expect from an older rye. And, and that light and refreshing is what I would expect from a younger rye. I, I don't think... The age matters on a rye. I think it's kind of what you like at the time and the season and the place, but it almost feels like it's ready to, to graduate. It feels like it's at the, the good spot, right? What you, it's what, what you guys are both saying to me, like different expressions of the same thing, which is very gratifying to me, which is what we were trying to get to. Your analogy was amazing. The freshmen and the seniors and balance being another great word. We were looking for the most balanced expression of what we had in front of us. What I feel confident in having, you know, going back to saying, which is what we did, tasting it at 16 proofs between, you know, 80 and 120, the sweet spot was 93 to 97. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy what I tasted on either side of that, but we clearly found a sweet spot for where this was. And that's what we were trying to bottle. And you mentioned the honey notes and the farm honey. That's important to me because like, that's interesting. Cause to me, that says like 
I think of honeycomb. And the honeycomb is not just about the sweetness, but there's a savory component as well. Raw honey is raw not honey. Not it's what a different thing. It's a different, it's a different thing. Honey. And really appreciate the notes though, because you know, like I said, it's it's interesting for me. It's like if you go to the notes on the bourbon, to me that's a little different because like I said, we just determined to keep the proof the same. This was an exercise in like, okay, we proof it wherever we want. We're going to continue to proof it wherever we want. It was like an epiphany for me to understand that that was like a better approach. And what I know is that some of the proofs below the 93.5 were less balanced. And even though the alcohol was going down, they actually seemed more alcoholic. They seemed hotter. Yeah. And some of the proofs that were north didn't seem right either. And we were just looking for the balance point. And that's why I like that you mentioned the word balance, because I think that is, I mean, that is the goal, right? And, and, and it's appropriate too, because I think I know really not too much about it, but I think they talk about horses being balanced as well. Right. And John probably knows what that is better, but it's just the idea of like the physicality. It's like everything wants to be in balance. And I think that's what we were looking for. And well, what I would also say is that a, a good jockey, when they're riding a horse, they know when the right time to change the lead is. And, you know, as you're running with a horse on one side of the track, you you're basically have the horse is going to lead with one leg. And then as you're going into the turn and, and you're going down to the back stretch and, and you're hitting that final turn, you're going to change the horse's lead. And it actually allows the horse to, as they change from one leg to the other going first, it actually gives them another boost of energy. So I would almost say that messing with the proof is almost like pinhook changing their lead. And yeah. You're, you're kind of kicking it into the next gear to say, oh, you know, hey, here's where we were kind of going through the first turn and down the backstretch, but here's where we change our lead and we're really going to kick it into a high gear. And in speaking of changing your lead, you guys are actually moving. You were with MGP. You still do have some MGP juice left, but you're actually now resting your barrels at Castle and Key and Castle and Key is now distilling uh, bourbon and rye for you. I think this is a whole other show and I hope to have you back again to talk about it, but the, the stuff that you guys are doing is now led by you and Marianne Barnes, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the dumb luck, which seems to be the <laughs> recurring theme continues, which is that Jamie Hill of Bourbon Lane Stable, one of his oldest and dearest friends, Will Arvin, was the guy who decided that this distillery, the E.H. Taylor Distillery, which had been sitting defunct since whatever it was, 71 or 72, and no one, everyone looked at it and was like, that's crazy. It has great ponds in it, too. It's beautiful. It's 110 acres. It's three miles from Woodford. It's, it's in the rolling hills. It's the whole thing. And it has, you know, existing infrastructure, a lot of which was still usable. And yet so many people saw it, knew what it was, and, and didn't end up doing anything with that. And ultimately, um, they, you know, will, and then ultimately with, uh, with Wes Murray, they made the purchase, hired Marianne Barnes from Woodford and made her a partner and have gone on this amazing journey. And we were just lucky to be there from the beginning because of Jamie's friendship with Will. And so 
long before they got to the point where they were now, we were on board with them. And so now we're lucky to call that our new home. And so I was fortunate um, to be able to sit down with Marianne and create a unique mash bill. Um, for and it's help. just for you guys, right? Correct. Yeah. And that, and I think that's a cool thing too. And honestly, like we take great pride in taking our MGP stuff and I think hopefully making our own unique representation of it. But now what we ultimately will have is a unique pinhook bourbon, a unique pinhook rye. Those barrels are already being filled, have been filled, are aging at Castle and Key. And so down the road, we'll segue out of our MGP product and we'll have 100% Castle and Key, which, which is great because not only is it unique to Castle and Key, but it's unique to us, meaning it's a product that no one else will have. So I think that that for us and for me, it, it kind of harkens back to the original thing, which is like it really just started because I was a bourbon nerd and I wanted to get closer to it. And so you start with like, we're going to buy barrels from MGP. Other people can buy barrels from MGP and then everyone does their own thing with them. And then you go to the next level where you're like, well, you don't have your own distillery, but you're talking to the master distiller and you get to sit down and taste different mash bills or different yeasts and pick your own mash bills. And so you're still not, I don't know how to run any of that stuff. I don't know what I'm doing, but I just know <laughs> I tasted the stuff before it went into the barrel and I liked it. And I'm super excited to see how it tastes after it ages. Well, I have no idea what that's going to be like. I think if there was a way for Zeke and I to get into you know, coming out with our own brand, that would be the way we would do it. And Zeke, would you? I mean, we, we, we don't have any of the overhead. All we have to do is pay people to do it for us, and we get to be involved in all the decision-making. All I'm simply going to say is... Are you guys trying to say I'm living your dream? A little bit. <laughs> I mean, do we need to re revert back to the char number four, the Linnell days? <laughs> Don't make me go cry in a corner, please. Hashtag um, living his best life. Jesus. But no, the dumb luck, I totally resonate to it. Dumb luck all the way. I've swore by that for so many years. Um, it simply is what it is, and you can't chalk it up to anything else. I will say, I, I do expect at some point a blend of products, considering we did have a, a mixture of what was left over of some bourbon and rye tastings earlier. The consensus was, damn, that's actually really good. Yeah, that was good. amazing. If any of you have hashtag bourbon, and <laughs> if you have release number three, hashtag bourbon, and you put it with the bourbon and rye. What's the ratio, Zeke? Hit him up. It was somewhere around 65-35, I think. 65 bourbon to 35 rye? Or no, no. 65 rye to 65 35 rye to 35 It was bourbon. amazing. Zeke and I are working on blending. And, and, and laughably, as, as much as Sean tasted these things through and out, it's funny to put something for somebody and be like, I mean, here's your own, you know, juice. We just did a random mix of it and like, damn, this tastes good. <laughs> I fun, love it though. Good is good is good. And I think that's what's always kind of governed everything. Yeah. You, you don't know what you know until you don't know it and then you know it. So honestly, my biggest takeaway from this, not to cut anything short, but simply was something that was mentioned by Sean early on was quality relative to price this day and age it's so much more apparent than anything else at 35 dollars this is rye rye you don't worry about age 
You worry about what somebody blended and how they put it in an expression. That's all you ever need to think about. Buy this. You won't regret it. I've shared it with plenty of people. Plenty of others have, have told me they've shared it as a plus one. It's a great expression. And who finds a good bottle at $35 in today's market? I hate to say it. it it's sad to a degree, but... If you can find a good rye for $35, you know, considering that some of those even younger ryes, the one-year rye or the two-year ryes, and I'm not even talking about Peerless, are coming out for $60. To get a very, very good rye at $35, first of all, I think we just want to say thank you. I think it's easy to understand in talking to you that you have an attention to detail and an attention to quality, although you might not know how to bake the cake, you know when a cake tastes good and, and when <laughs> to send you. it back. <laughs> there you go, Johnny. You're getting your analogy game better. I love that. I, yeah, you're um, stepping up finally. I'm proud of you. I do what I can. Um, <laughs> I, I think if anything, thank you for taking the time with us, but I mean, we've just really enjoyed the conversation. It's easy to, to understand how much of an enthusiast you are, not only just being putting your name behind a brand now, but just the fact that it's easier, I think, to do your job and where you are if you like it. If you didn't like it, it's really hard to do your job, and it's easy to see that you like it. Um, we should expect a bourbon and rye every year, right? Now Correct. that you put the rye out? Yeah. So, yeah, so every you know the current plan is every fall you can expect a new bourbon and a new rye from pinhook each one having a new horse that is starting its career that you can follow so two horses a year two horses a year and that's that's the current plan and i that uh, for the foreseeable future until you know i think you guys brought up a great point which is like i'm like you guys i'm ultimately guided by the the bourbon enthusiast side more than anything. And so if we have more barrels that we can play with and we can do interesting things with them and we can age them and sauterne barrels or find other cool things to do with them, like we'd love to kind of expand what we're doing. But all of that would just be around the idea of like continuing to do things that are exciting and interesting, hopefully, you know, to everybody, but obviously to us first and foremost. I know you're talking about the whiskey side of it, but you know, is there ever a chance that you might have a lot of your horses running in the same race together then? That's a great, I mean, you know, so I, poor Jamie, like we all jump on him all the time. We're like, Jamie, this would just be so easy if you would just pick, you know, a bunch of winners. <laughs> <laughs> When's our derby winner? Because this whole thing is a slam dunk. If you well, just pick a derby winner or even a derby runner, but what happens yeah. if he puts him up at a claiming race and then somebody takes it that you guys don't have your horse anymore? <laughs> We're, you know, all bets are off. We accept everything that goes with the reality of the horse world. So, well, it's all good. Since it is Derby Week, I want to take two seconds. I, I did call in to uh, my, my old employer and okay. I was talking to the guys from the Horse Racing Radio Network. Yeah. I'm a little bummed. The Derby is going to be on May 5th. Uh, Gronkowski is out. Ugh. Come on, Gronk. So Gronk is no uh, longer partying we so it up in the Derby. We were so excited. Um, but you know, the favorite right now is Justify. 
It's a Bob Baffert horse. Mike Smith is the jockey. You should know those guys if you... It is a Windstar Farm horse. It's not a Bourbon Lane Stables horse. Windstar has four horses in this race. I would throw out Justify at this point. It's 7-2. A lot of people think Magnum Moon coming in uh, at 6-1 to one is probably going to be the favorite. A couple horses to look out for here. Mendelssohn is the half-brother to Beholder. He actually ran two seconds under the track record in Dubai. Uh, another horse to look out for here is Good Magic. It is good for the long shot. Won the Bluegrass Stakes at Keeneland in its last outing. However, the one I'm looking for right now is actually the son of Curlin and Vino Rosso. It is 15-1, to 1, just won the Wood Memorial up in New York. The trainer is Todd Pletcher. The jockey is John Velasquez. And the interesting thing of this one is John Velasquez actually rode Audible and Noble Indy, which are two other horses in the race, and he decided to pick Vino Rosso for his mount in the Derby. So looking at this race, I Zeke is, is looking at me funny, but I couldn't talk about the Derby or, or talk to Pinhook and not talk about the Derby. I am actually going to go... Hey, my trifecta would be Magnum uh, Moon, Mendelssohn, and Vino Rosso. I, if I was doing the superfecta, I'd throw Good Magic in there as well. I mean, unless there's one called Go Dogs, <laughs> I don't give a shit. Well, I, I had to throw for those of you that are listening in the great state of Kentucky and you are looking at the Derby. That is our take. Zeke's just going to trust me on that one. Sean, we'll, we'll see if Jamie said anything, but if he didn't, we'll get you next time. We'll look out for um, comments from Jamie Hill, who's the horse part of the pinhook program, but uh, <laughs> for now, we'll trust what he said. We, we really appreciate you coming on. We hope to have you on again, talk about what you guys are doing as that bourbon and rye at Castle and Key makes its way uh, forward a little more. I think Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We should come up there and try it with you. And That's give you, a done deal. Give you an opinion. Um, but come down anytime. We're happy to have you. Any parting notes before you uh, before we sign off here? No, I just, I, I mean, I just said no, but I guess I'll say yes. <laughs> um, I had so much fun. I, I think that more than anything, you know, the greatest shift in the world of, of American whiskey has been the enthusiast being able to become part of the product. And I think, you know, I've been lucky in a lot of ways, but I'm just, I just see myself as a result of that. I don't see myself as any different from anyone else who loves whiskey and thinks they know what tastes good. Um, I just happen to going back to the dumb luck theme. I just happen to get lucky and, and be in a position to, to get to decide what's in a bottle. But I don't know that I'm any more qualified than anyone else who loves whiskey and, and, and thinks they know a great, uh, a, a great glass when they encounter it. But, uh, I feel extremely fortunate and I'm very appreciative for anyone who supports, um, anything that we put out there and hopefully we'll continue to follow what we do. Cause I keep learning as we go and I keep learning about blending and that, that really is where it started was the idea of getting a better understanding of it. And I do learn more. Like I said, I wouldn't, uh, if, if I had to do it over, I would have proofed every of the first seven releases of bourbon. I would have proofed them differently. 
And the rise a representation of understanding that and we'll continue to continue to, you know, push forward and, and, and try to put the best thing in the bottle that we can. So thank you very much. Thank you, Zeke. Any parting notes? I'm still sighing about Brooklyn char number four. Uh, I'm, I'm sighing about char number four. <sighs> Somehow I, I missed out on something here. Uh, you know, maybe we have to actually go to New Orleans instead of uh, in New Orleans, Kentucky. Well, we got to go down to Shantos. You might still have something uh, left. I got something there. to share. Come and see me whenever you guys oh, want. Please. So, closing this out, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we we really appreciate people like you taking the time to sit with us. We appreciate you all listening to us, whether or not you're listening to us on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Podknife, Spotify, iHeartRadio, YouTube, however you're listening to us. Thank you very much. Please leave us a five-star review. Tell us why you like us. Write it in there. If you don't like us, reach out to us directly. We want to make it better. You can find us on Instagram at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Find us on Facebook at Dad's Drinking Bourbon. Find us on Twitter at Bourbon Dads. You can find Sean here on Instagram at hashtag.bourbon. You can also find Pinhook Bourbon on Facebook, Instagram, all those good things. Please go ahead and follow them. Drink their bourbon. Drink their rye. It's good stuff. And I think I should close this saying the bourbon is actually going to find its way into Nashville on uh in the fall right correct yeah so we're gonna have in the fall we'll have this was our first rye we'll have our second rye and a bourbon that is younger than the previous bourbon releases but also priced accordingly well we can't wait zeke where else can the folks find us normally i would say nashville tennessee which does happen but i'm currently going to migrate towards sean's home in new orleans and try to find <laughs> what epic things he's holding on to breaking and entering is not you know i can deal with it oh he's giving you an open invitation so you're good okay i feel better now well thank you all for listening <laughs> we hope you all have a good day night and zeke is going to be off in the fetal position crying in the corner so cheers <laughs> <laughs>